Hi, India. How's it going? Hi, it's going well. I um, I'm here in Florida in my kitchen. Uh, <laughs> like I said, I just moved, <laughs> so this is the the backdrop of my life at the moment, aka the cool, Florida cool. Keys. Nice, nice. Um, well, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. You have a super interesting story that's been covered pretty extensively in you know, a bunch of different documentaries and articles and everything, um, especially the documentary Seduced about the Nexium cult. But what hasn't really been talked about is how psychedelics sort of played a role in you know, your healing journey after you escaped Nexium. And I am pretty honored, honestly, that you're willing to you know, talk about that subject with me. So just wanted to say thank you to start with thank you honestly it's, i am i'm a noob to this conversation so like we could talk you know for hours about cults and i'll give you a little bit of a a background to my story and how i got to uh that healing stage in a second but yeah I, there's there's nothing really more exciting to me right now than the topic that we're going to discuss today because like every, everyone's always like oh true crime true crime i'm like wait wait but what about the healing like <laughs> you're just gonna leave right. out what all these after, poor what happens people. after yeah, the crime exactly what happens after because this is not these are real people that we're talking about we're not talking about um you know actors for hire so yeah what i was gonna i i think um india like obviously the story of nexium and you know your time in that cult has been covered like extensively and people can go and watch the seduced documentary and there are other documentaries and there are articles and there are books it's like you know it's been covered quite a bit so you should definitely go and like read and watch and learn about that but for those who you know maybe are not already familiar with it could you maybe give just a quick like 5 or 10 minute sort of backstory of what that was like and you know how you yeah. ended up here and I, and I appreciate your disclaimer on the front end, because if you're at all interested in brainwashing, coercion, high control groups and cults, you may be interested in my story. <laughs> but I would truth- agree. I mean, and the documentary is fascinating, too. I mean, I was watching yeah. it. It was weird because I had met you before I even really like knew about the story. And then I was mm-hmm. watching it and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this is like not only real, but also that I've actually talked to this person before. I know the so first crazy. interaction we had was, oh, you were in a cult? Oh, I was in a cult. Okay, cool. Let's have a panel. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that was our so icebreaker. But anyways, here so I go. So basically Nexium is a cult. You could call it a high control group or a number of things. Um, it wasn't it wasn't really called a cult until it was actually brought to mainstream media. It was called uh, Nexium with a whole bunch of subset companies underneath it, including one that I was introduced to, which is sort of like their consumer front product called Executive Success Programs. So Executive Success Program was kind of like a self-help oriented group that went after people who had means, who were interested in humanitarian efforts, who wanted to better themselves. And what they did was they said, we have these amazing classes, come join our mission and you will better yourself. You'll better your company, you'll better your relationship. It was, it was like a real pie in the sky dream. And they said that they had this technology and that they were using science and psychology and all of these things that kind of at the time, I was 19, and, and I was intrigued. I mean, I had grown up in LA, which is pretty much saturated with um, 
personal growth and self-help. So like for me, the idea of going to a small room in Santa Monica and listening to a spiel about personal development was kind of like not that unusual. So as much as it should have been a red flag, it was not to me at the time. Um, I went with my mother to an intro presentation. And from that intro presentation, they enrolled us to be students in their ongoing curriculum. And then within that curriculum, they have a whole coaching program. And the coaching program has hierarchies and ranks. And what you don't know as a consumer or as a student is that there is really an inner circle kind of running this whole company, which in a lot of ways, and I can see this now at the time, I didn't see it at all, are multiple shell companies, because not only is the organization corrupt, but they also money launder, and they do a whole bunch of other things that are really typical of um, of illegal groups, whether it's a mafia or a cult, or any kind of like, you know, nefarious activity, there's usually, sadly to say, abuse, of a sexual nature, of an emotional nature, or there is, um, you know, evading taxes, or there's a, there's a number of things that once you know, you can't unknow. So it's like, it's really good to be equipped with the information of how these groups work, how these people work as leaders, so that you actually know how to identify them out in the wild, so to speak. So I had a lot of blind spots. I really think that, um, because of the way that I grew up and the things that I was looking for in my life at the time, which were guidance and structure, the Nexium uh, spiel really spoke to me. But, you know, I wasn't the only one because there happened to be thousands of people that went through this self-help group. Um, and, you know, hundreds of them ended up being coaches. So like the committed group that I mentioned to you, the group within the group. So it wasn't until five years later that I became a coach myself. I was groomed and indoctrinated into believing a very, very, very intense um, protocol and education to the point where I was severely brainwashed. And I wasn't the only one in, in that uh, system that had been there for a number of years. I mean, I was there for seven, there were people there for 12, 15 plus. So the head of this organization was named Keith Ranieri. And he, um, enlisted a bunch of other, you know, intelligent people to put together a program that he knew from the start was going to be exploitative and coercive. I think that most good manipulators distribute information uh, strategically. So nobody ever really knows the whole scope of what someone like a Keith Raniere was intending to do until you get, you know, close enough. But by the time you're that close, you're already compromised. So like, I'd say that Nexium is a modern cult, but to be honest, there's even more <laughs> out there that are far more technologically advanced. In a lot of ways, ours could have been old-fashioned, old but it wasn't like we were just dancing around in the woods in white gowns, like chanting at night. You know, we were sitting in classrooms in suburban Albany, you know, looking, so to speak, normal. But... Like from the outside, a lot of these things can look normal until you actually know what you're looking at. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so that's kind of people, the long and the short yeah, of it. That's, yeah, that, that's a good short version. And I mean, for people that haven't seen the documentary or read much about Nexium, 
uh, I would definitely recommend uh, watching the documentary, at least a few episodes of Seduced. Um, it is about a hundred times more wild than you just made it sound. <laughs> so uh, that's the, <laughs> yeah, that's the uh, teaser. So that like, I, I left out, out all the, um, <laughs> I left out yeah, all the psychological parts. abuse, sexual abuse, um, very just so many bizarre things. It's like one thing after another that just keeps getting crazier. Um, I think the reason and, why sometimes I, I like to talk about it like that because is because I like people to come with an open mind because a lot of times you you can throw out these sort of sensational taglines or labels and people go, oh my God, that is so crazy. That's nothing like me. I'd never get in a situation like that. When the reality is you break down the process and like, I don't really know anybody who hasn't been fooled or conned or manipulated in their life at least once. So like, it's an opportunity to actually look at an extreme example and go, Oh, hmm, yeah, I can see how I could have been manipulated in that circumstance. It doesn't make you like fucked up or anything. It just makes you a regular human being with vulnerabilities. (laughs) Right. And it's one thing that you do see when you watch the documentary is that it's not like, immediate. It's a very slow burn, right? I mean, it took years before the real crazy stuff happened, if I'm not mistaken. Completely. Right? Like, yeah, no, you're, it's not you're like, absolutely day, it's not like right. day one, you're, you know, going up to the, to the limit. No, no. And that's the whole thing with grooming indoctrination and like those types of mind control practices is like you, you know, you get somebody right off the street and you go, Oh yeah, today we're going to brand you. And they go, no fucking way. But you get somebody in a room isolated from their family, you know, under strict restrictive rules, whether it comes to sleep deprivation, food deprivation, you start getting them saying, you know, I love you. Everything that you're doing for me is for my own benefit. You slowly erode somebody's self-confidence and their ability to feel like they have choice. And you have a very malleable person. Like you basically have a broken person that then you can manipulate into it whichever way you want. So like, if you don't want to see that you are susceptible to that, then you might want to look at that too, because you're like, we're all much more fragile than we think, especially when it comes to our our psychology and the way that we think about ourselves. Totally. Yeah. Like you said, you don't, you don't whip out the branding pen on day one. That takes, that takes some time. No. And, and that's, that's kind of like why I like to talk about this stuff is because people like to think like, Oh, that's so far from me when really, um, I see, I see a lot more people coming to me with messages like, wow, I was in a basically DOS 2.0 in Canada. They did the same practices to me. And I'm like, I'm so sorry that this is far too common. Jesus. And for those who don't yeah. know, DOS was like, it was the sort of inner circle of uh, Nexium where a lot of the more sexual abuse took place. Or at least that's what I took from the documentary. I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Um, it was, yeah, it was, you kind of got it. It was, it was the cult within the cult and, and it really focused on subjugating women specifically um, through really weird, weird tactics. Yeah, definitely very, very weird, which are also described in a lot more detail in, uh, in the documentary. So maybe we'll get back to some of the more cold stuff, but I think the most interesting thing here is what happened sort of 
after you escaped the cult and how kind of psychedelics played a role in your healing from the seven years of, you know, abuse, manipulation, trauma. How did, I mean, Life. how did you even get <laughs> turned on to psychedelics in the first place? Because during, mm-hmm. if, I, if I remember correctly, watching the documentary, or maybe you just told this to me, I forget, but the cult itself was pretty sober. Like people were not consuming Completely. drugs. Completely. Oh my God. No, dude. No. Like the, the, the fact that like, I look at my life now and the way that I like to enjoy myself and like, you know, have a couple beers here and there, smoke spot, whatever, like enjoy psychedelics for therapeutics, but also recreationally. I look at my, I had a sober, like dry ass life for seven years thinking that I was being totally altruistic. And, and I'm like, God, no wonder I was so cranky. I mean, I was cranky for a number of reasons, including, you know, the brainwashing, which I don't take lightly, but I, um, yeah, it was, it, they were sober. They didn't believe in drugs. They didn't believe in alcohol. They said they were very negative about it because they didn't want anything that was going to alter your state of mind out of the hypnosis that they were like pretty much putting us all in. Right. Right. Okay. But, so uh, the, you left, the, you left, um, Nexium when was it 2020 or 2019? No, no it, was 20, early, it was earlier than that. Right. It was 2018, 2018, uh, 2017 when like everything started to like start to come out into the media. And then, um, 2018 when it really started to like come out, my mom was doing more. Yeah, your mom really did some incredible work to bring that thing down. Um, mm-hmm. So 2018, you leave. I assume you're probably starting to going, to, starting to go to like traditional therapy to help like recover from this. At what point do psychedelics kind of show up? I was actually terrified of going to therapy because mm. the past seven years of my life had been kind of like pseudo therapeutics. Oh, yeah, um, that makes sense. So I did not trust anybody to be messing with my mind. I was just, I kind of, I was in a state at that point in 2018 where I would literally like put my hands over my ears and be like, okay, I need to, there was so much noise and influence around me from the group, from my mom, from the media, from friends, from family members, everyone was trying to tell me what to do. And I was just like, fuck, like, what do I want? Like, I didn't even have access to that voice that, um, knew what I needed. I just was kind of purely going off of instinct. And sometimes I would really fuck up. And sometimes I would, you know, make the right choice. Um, But I had been so disconnected from my, I mean, it sounds kind of woo woo, but like my inner knowing and like, my ability to know what was right for me had been so tampered with, let alone my intuition that it was difficult um, to know what, how to navigate that situation coming out of the cult. I didn't go straight into the tr- traditional therapy. I went, um, and spoke to a deprogrammer and she was a former cult member in a group called the Moonies. I don't know if you know about that group, but so the I think, South Korean one. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And, and so she was in that, um, from a really young age. And so I think, um, at the time I, I began speaking to my mom, but it was like, we were talking two different languages. So she also acted as a mediator for my mother and I to kind of like bridge the gap between like cult speak <laughs> and, uh, normal life. Um, and the things that my mom was actually trying to be helpful about. So I worked with her for a while and sometimes we would just talk all day long, just processing stuff from my past. And she really like, I started to feel safe with her and I, I wasn't feeling safe or trusting with people 
I also noticed that like the way that she spoke to me was all about um, re-engaging critical thinking. So there was like no definitive, this is yes, this is no, it was sort of like, well, like, let's discover what you think. Like, let's see if that provokes any memories because truly my memory was fucked up. Like it was twisted. There were things that I was remembering that were not real and vice versa. There were, there were periods of my life that I had totally blocked out from my childhood and from the time in the cult and that we're all kind of like replaced with the doctrine slash like this is what you need to say in order to stay safe so like there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot of room for play or for like oh you remember that lovely little nostalgic moment in the trees when I was five like I wasn't there yet (laughs) that took like a lot of mushrooms to get back (laughs) (laughs) but um so then I went into kind of um, working with the FBI for nine months. So I wasn't actually allowed to talk to anybody. They don't, you're not even allowed to write in a journal, like technically speaking. Yeah. Because anything that you, uh, say or write could be used in the, in the case. If like, if somebody wants to subpoena your therapist, they can. And I was feeling like super vulnerable and I didn't really want to talk to anybody. So I really leaned in on my mom and, um, was having her help me through this, this time. And I leaned on my husband a lot. He was my, my boyfriend at the time. And I knew I wasn't really allowed to talk to anybody about what I spoke about with the FBI, but I was like, can I please just like talk to my boyfriend because I'm going psycho. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Like you're like siloed on an Island but it's a horrible nightmare and the island is basically like you going to the FBI for, you know, six to eight hours a day talking about everything that's happened to you from like the moment of conception on and they're, they're testing you and they're like testing your accuracy. And the crazy part about doing that kind of linear work is that while I was doing it, more memories were coming up thing stuff that I thought was like totally irrelevant. I'd be like, Oh yeah. I remember that time when they were like talking about moving cash to Mexico. And, and they're like, did you not think that was strange? And I was like, mm, Nope, not at the time, but now sitting here with you all staring at me, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so like there were many moments like that. And there were like many kind of like funny, disturbing moments. And then also just like crippling humiliation and just like, you really, you're putting, I was spilling my gut. So it was the good, the bad and the ugly. And, you know, talk about ego and wanting to be perceived as a certain way. Like here I am explaining this version of myself. That's the brainwashed indoctrinated cult version of India that I like thought was me going like, but that's not me. But they're like, but you did that. And I'm like, what? So it was like a collision of reality versus you know, what I had been trained to believe was going on. I believed that we were doing good. I believed that um, we were helping. And to actually be met with the fact that everything that you were doing was entirely the opposite, it sent me into a very fragile mental state where I thought that I was kind of like in a psychosis. And then I was going up and down with depression, anxiety, panic attacks, suicidal ideation. I mean, it was very, very, very disturbing. Um, and I didn't, and nobody tells you about that. <laughs> they're not, they're, they're like, oh yeah, when you are severely traumatized for a long time, just wait for the ride after. <laughs> and and you're like, I 
I mean, that was sometimes harder because I like, I knew that I was, you know, doing the right thing by sharing my, my truth, but it was also triggering me into bad places. Yeah. I'd imagine. And the fact that it's crazy that you were obviously isolated in Nexium, but then you're basically isolated for almost a year later while this whole investigation is going on. And now you're being interrogated by, you know, government officials instead of cult members. It's like just a, that must've been quite stressful. I can't imagine. It was really stressful, um, but at least I knew that I was on the way, like I could see a light at the end of the tunnel. Like I didn't know sure. where it was, but I was just like, come on, like you're your job is to say the truth. Just say the truth. And if you forget anything, just tell them that you forgot and say it again. That I, but like, there was a lot of pressure. I wanted to get it right. I wanted to do well. I wanted to like get this all out of me. And I had felt for so many years that I couldn't share any of this stuff. So it was like being in sure. prison <laughs> and coming out and getting to talk for the first time. Yeah, I bet. So, okay. So when that's done, then there's the trial then eventually Keith and some other people go to prison. Correct. In um, that time is I, when I write my book and I make the documentary as well. Gotcha. Okay. So I wasn't doing a lot of psychedelics at that time. I was working right. really hard and at um, right. processing what had happened and then also sharing it in a way that could make sense. And I just wanted it to be educational. I wanted it to be impactful. I wanted people to be able to relate, but I also wanted people to understand that there's dangers out there in the world that you don't have to live in fear all the time, but that you need to be aware that there are people out there who will look for vulnerable people to manipulate. So totally. like, it's kind of sad, but it's also a truth. So when did psychedelics come into play? And had you, had you, did you ever, like when you were in high school, did you ever do psychedelics or anything or was it your first time after all this? No. (laughs) So I'm going to tell you, I've never told this story, but like in public, (laughs) and I feel like I'm going to get in trouble, but please know that I was only 13 years old and I didn't know anything about like really the religious significance of this plant. Mm, So I um, was 13 years old. My mom and my stepdad were out of town for work. That happened often where they would leave for like a month at a a time because they were actors and uh, we would have like a nanny take care of us or an au pair or something for me. (laughs) And so (laughs) I, um, I was, I had my friend over and I was like, okay, guess what? My mom has these little cactuses upstairs. We're going to take no way. Yeah. We're going to take one. We're going to eat it. We're going to hang out at the house and like, just see what happens. And so I stole a peyote from my mom, lied about it, told her that it was like a hippie friend who came over and took it. So again, on top of the, like, on top of this deceit, I lie and blame it on this poor guy who like wasn't even there. I eat it with my friend. We're tripping all over the front yard. We're like, woo! (laughs) Hey, Yodi, I'm turning to her and I'm like, holy shit, look at these flowers. The flowers are like coming at me. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, it was truly a psychedelic experience, like, but cartoony and everything was so beautiful. And I, I, I remember thinking, I was sitting on the grass and I was like, wow, why don't we see life like this all the time? Like, how is this so, 
like this is clearly right in front of me. And the only thing that's different is my perception. Like nothing has changed except for how I'm perceiving the world. And I love it. And I just thought it was so beautiful, but I felt so much shame for stealing the peyote and also lying to my mom about it that I, I never really talked about it. But at 13 was the first time that I took psychedelics. So I kind of like always had a weird reference point for it being beautiful and expansive and enjoyable and, yeah. and peaceful. And so did so, you, did you kind of get more into psychedelics um, during high school before getting into Nexium or was that kind of just no, a one and done? Thing? That was a one and done. I was a real goody two shoes in high school. Like I probably partied the, the amount of times on my hands, like I would sneak off and drink beers and smoke pot at the beach. But uh, that was very right. rare. And that was really just to be accepted because like that wasn't naturally what I was interested in that time. I was a home buddy. I wanted to like cook and watch Food Network and, you know, hang out with my cat, which is like where I'm at now again. But <laughs> <laughs> in high school, I wasn't cool. State. I wasn't cool. And it got wasn't it. until I got out of Nexium through, you know, a couple years of healing to where I, and this is, you know, me being really honest, like I wasn't ready for psychedelics for a while in my healing process. Like I would say that my mental state was too fragile. And I guess that's really, it's a real personal thing that you're going to have to evaluate for yourself. But if you've gone through extensive trauma, you, or have, you know, a doctor evaluate for you, uh, which I didn't, I was just kind of checking in and being like, okay, how stable am I at this point? And I would just gauge it on how long I could go without having a depressive episode. So, yeah. or a panic you, attack. You make a good point though, that like, if you are really kind of in the middle of some crazy, you know, traumatic healing it's or whatever, too much. you know, you may not want to just like shake the tree of reality by like taking a bunch of mushrooms. You know, you definitely at least want to think about it first. Absolutely. Because what my, and I'll, and I'll go backwards and then I'll catch up again. But my, when, when I was inside of the cult, I remember visiting, um, during the holidays and my mom actually took me to a shaman. And and I think we might've talked about this, but, uh, my mom took me to a shaman who gave me, she bought like three heroes doses to do with this guy. And I ended up doing two of them, two out of the three, but the first they were so intense. I was still in the cult. So like my brain was really fractured and like the trip was very, um, like quintessential mushrooms. Wait, like either, in the cult I was still in. Point? So my mom thought uh-huh. that if she was going to give me the mushrooms, that it would help me pop out. But the truth is I was still too deep. She didn't really know the extent of what mm-hmm. I was dealing with, with like the blackmail, which we also talk about in the documentary. So yeah, like she collateral. was just trying to, yeah, she was just trying to pop me out mentally, but that trip stuck with me. So I'll get back to that. Um, the guy who gave me those, you know, mushroom journeys was less than ideal. Sadly, I learned after the fact that he was a little bit inappropriate with women when they were under the influence, which was really triggering for me and like terribly terrible, terrible for anyone who's going for healing, especially if you have distrust of men, because of being taken advantage of. So like the whole thing was a little shifty, but the medicine, as you know, sometimes the medicine can still be great, even though, you know, the environment or the practitioner is less than ideal Um, (laughs) or the shaman, whatever, whatever name people are going by. 
But so wait, I, I don't want to cut you off, but like, so yeah. you go home, you said it was on holiday when this happened. Yeah, I went on holiday. I was home. My mom put me on these trips. She said that when I got out of <clears throat> this guy's house and she was with me, she had me like she like recognized me for about an hour. And then I went back on my phone and then they started communicating with me again. And I was kind of like down the rabbit hole. So when you went home, I mean, obviously Nexium was not a big fan. I didn't of tell anybody. And you, and, but, 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 but just you personally, your mom is like, Hey, we're going to go do these, this heroic dose of mushrooms. And you're just like, sure. Or were you feeling weird about it? Like what was, I, you, what was sort of your mindset? I was feeling weird because I was feeling pull like my loyalty to the group was being compromised because I was about to do something that I knew I was going to have to lie about. And so that made me uncomfortable because I was like, mm, I'm going to have to do this and lie to them and know that I did this. And I was very paranoid about them kind of knowing everything that I did because they were always right, in contact course, with me and I'm a terrible liar. So I was like, she's going to know, even though I don't tell her, which is like, you know, the craziness that you do to yourself. But your mom, uh, she didn't say, she didn't say like, we're going to do these mushrooms to help you realize what's been no. going on or no, no. she was just like, this she was more strategic. Yeah. She yeah, was more strategic. Okay. And she was like, I've been doing this. It's been really helpful. Like, I think you would really like it. You might want to try. And I was like, maybe, maybe, maybe. And then finally I was like, yeah, I want to. Um, because there's still a part of me that trusted my mom, even though I was afraid. Um, like I had known my mom longer than I had been in the cult, but they had done a, like what I, what felt like irreparable damage to our relationship that we've been able to repair. But I was and really loyal to again? Allison. Sorry. That's 2017. Okay. So near the end. Yeah, near the end, but it was still like the, the last throes of, of um, my time in the group was like it, those last couple of years were really rough. <laughs> yeah because yeah. that's when everything was starting to implode and you know when it was kind of like a war between the two groups and uh so then I got but psychedelics really I started to feel more called to them I'd say a year and a half ago and I did a little bit of experimenting with mushrooms with my now husband um for fun it was before I even really understood like the therapeutic benefits, but I, this is super intimate, but I, um, I remember taking them a couple times when we would have sex and I would be like, what is this? Like, this is what sex is supposed to feel like. Like everything would just feel like relaxed. Everything would feel good. Like all the opposite of what a majority of my sexual experiences had been for the past number of years, which were like traumatic and yeah. so like I get to this place where I was like, I felt so free and I felt so like I wasn't judging myself. I wasn't judging the experience. Like it was so cool. And that like did that didn't leave me at all. I was like, wow, there's something to this here. Because for somebody who, you know, has experienced sexual abuse, like it's so demoralizing when you're with somebody who you know loves you and that you love but you're still getting physically triggered by the past. And you're like, oh my God, I want to be with this person so bad. I want to be with them without the trauma. But you feel like you're broken. And then they feel they feel bad. And they're like, did I do something? And like, then you don't want to have sex. Like, you don't even want to touch. Like, 
You know what I mean? It could, it's, yeah, it's I've, tough. I've been on the, on the other side of that. I've dated people who have had those experiences and it's very, very challenging. For, I mean, for both parties, um, as you said, and you know, there are lots of people sort of in the psychedelics industry, if you want to call it that, um, both on the research side and the business side that are suggesting that psychedelics can be used to heal um, sexual trauma. And I guess like your story is at least one piece of evidence in favor of that idea. Are we talking like yeah. micro dose or macro, like no. big dose? So a big dose. I didn't, yeah, big doses. I didn't really get into micro dosing until a little later, like when I was experimenting. I love science. And I love looking at myself as like a science experiment. So I don't mind if I'm the mad scientist behind like orchestrating. <laughs> I've learned <laughs> from my mistakes to not relinquish that control. Like you, you stay and you have your own autonomy. Like you listen to you first. That's the, that's the major takeaway of this podcast. <laughs> but um, psychedelics uh, with, like with Patrick were really just about us like exploring and having a good time and, and, doing something that is completely natural that can be very healing. I mean, like people joke, Oh, sexual healing and all of that. But like when you have sexual trauma, you need sexual healing. And I think every single person out there has something that they wish that they could, you know, resolve within themselves, especially when it comes to our sexuality, whether it's how you identify, like if you feel like you need to label yourself as something, if you feel like you need other people to see you as a certain way, like all of that stems from somewhere. And so like, the more that I experimented with the mushrooms, the more I saw, wow, I'm not really broken at all. Like, there's nothing wrong with my body. Like my body knows what to do. <laughs> like, yeah. it's really in here, like in our, in our minds and in our, in, in these kinds of boxes that we put ourselves in that go, Oh yeah, don't get out of that box. Like that's a scary right. box. So the mushrooms can help break you out of that box, I guess, and allow your body to just do what it knows how to do, but has been held Without back from shame. Doing by your mind. Yeah. So what, um, it, you know, what advice would you give to maybe other women who have experienced sexual trauma that want to try and use uh, psychedelics to heal from that? Is it as simple as just taking some mushrooms with mm -mm. your partner or are there no. some other things that you would recommend? I would recommend so many things. I mean, like if you have a partner that you feel really safe with, that you have good communication with, um, you might want to look into taking psychedelics together. Uh, but I would say start with yourself first. Um, that was kind of what I needed. I needed a lot of time alone. And whether that was just like alone in bed with blankets over me, just feeling safe and warm and kind of like coddled, that's kind of what I needed for a long time. Um, go, go with your gut. Like follow your instinct on what you think you need and when you need it. Then if you want to introduce it with yourself with like, you know, self-care practices, like you take psychedelics and you get into your bathtub or like, you know, like things that are safe, things that make you feel good, things that provoke sensation that might have previously felt scary. So like for me, even having water running around like your breasts mm -hmm. or things like that, like that at a time would have been like, ew, gross, creepy, weird. Like, and then I'm like, but why? Like it's me in the bathtub with my own body. Like, why is this bad? Why am I having funky feelings? So then you just like dive in and you dig around and you figure out like, 
oh, I don't need that. I don't need that belief about myself. Like I'm ready to let it go. And like the mushrooms in a microdosing sense really help with pattern reforming. So like if you're stuck in a you know trauma loop where you're really, I, I call it obsessed because it kind of feels like an obsession, obsession with self-hatred and that you can only view yourself through the lens of when I see myself in the mirror or a photo, I think, how ugly is that person? That ugly, fat, disgusting loser. Like that's addiction. That's addictive. And like you get stuck there yeah, and you you're mean. used to that and you, and it goes down into a cycle of negativity and self-hatred. Like you can stop all of that. And that's what I didn't know until I started microdosing more regularly. And I felt like I had the brain power to override the negative pattern loop that I was so used to. So like, I didn't quite answer the whole like question about if you have trauma with sexuality, should you take psychedelics? I think there's a lot to do in preparation for that because if you take too much, you could also re-traumatize yourself in a way that you're not ready for. (laughs) One thing that I think is super interesting about sort of your story with psychedelics is that if you listen to a lot of the, I guess you could say leaders of, you know, the psychedelic movement, they always emphasize that you need to do it with like a guide or a therapist or whatever. Otherwise, you know, it's unsafe and you shouldn't do this stuff by yourself. But it sounds like a lot of your psychedelic use was kind of self-guided, if you want to call it that. Is that right? Yeah, it was. And I, and I don't, and that's why I've been a little nervous to talk about it because it's been my own experiment, my own mental health experiment on myself. Because when I first came out of the cult, the depression and anxiety was so bad. I didn't recognize myself and they, I went to a, um, uh, a psychiatrist who said, oh, yeah, I can give you two things, anti-anxiety, you know, beta blockers and an SSRI for depression. And I was like, I can't afford that because I can't afford anything that tampers with my memory. Like I need everything in order to have memory recall because I had lost myself. So I wanted to get myself back. So when I started to research a little bit more about mushrooms and how they actually help to regenerate the brain, I was like, that is what I need. (laughs) And it was my mom who really introduced me like to psychedelics through, you know, the kindness of her heart and wanting me to heal too. Yeah. Um, and that's definitely like a big part of your story too, is the fact that it wasn't just you, it was like family as well. Right. Mm -hmm. So has that, have you noticed that psychedelics have helped sort of you know, heal the relationships between family and sort of what has that been like? Huge. I mean, we went through a natural disaster together as a family in 2018. Uh, We lost our home to the Woolsey fires in Malibu. And so like right after the cult and the family estrangement (laughs) compounded another like dramatic thing where we lost all of our possessions and so like we kind of trauma bonded over that experience and so since then these past couple of years we have done psychedelics as a family together and we've been able to have beautiful conversations and really like open our hearts to each other and and really get to see the special gifts that everyone has instead of I think so much of my time and families is like has been about Uh, Oh, like, don't upset that person or don't provoke this issue or like you're always tiptoeing around people's sensitivities. Like when you actually do psychedelics together, it gets rid of that filter and you're just like honest. (laughs) 
And, uh, and you gotta kind of, you gotta be ready for that. And that's something I give my mom a shit ton of credit for because she's brave when it comes to taking responsibility for her part. A lot of parents are not, a lot of parents don't really want to look at how they participated in their own children's trauma, but it is just the nature of the beast. Like we're going to do it too, our own kids. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Yeah. There's no such thing as a, there's no such thing as a traumaless childhood and it's, you know, the parents definitely play a part in it. But your mom is definitely amazing and has a, a lot of high agency and I guess like self-responsibility, if that's even a word. Yeah, she Um, does. Yeah. But that's really cool. I mean, I've done psychedelics with my mom and it was, uh, everything you said really just tears down those filters and allows like real, real communication, which is very, very rare. Um, even amongst people that, you know, our family, it's, it can be hard. That's Um, the part that I'm, that I'm not really, like I have never really understood. And that's what I think I love about this sort of psychedelic Renaissance that we're re-engaging with, um, at this time is like what, like real deep conversation, real connection, real, like really understanding somebody else's mind and how they think and how they see the world is so cool. Like, why would you want to be in a intimate relationship where you just like show up, clock in, clock out, turn on the TV, make some food, have sex, and then like do it all over again? It's like so boring. I mean, where's the, where's the, the stuff? yeah Yeah, no they can definitely add a lot of substance and flavor to life um besides mushrooms did you experiment with anything else or have been mushrooms have mushrooms been the cornerstone really of your uh psychedelic journey uh i just love and respect them so much and so i think like mushrooms have really been um the cornerstone but i've also experimented with mdma and with um with ketamine and ketamine I'll say was what I needed after the mushrooms. So I did like a lot of experimenting with microdosing with mushrooms and MDMA for almost a year. Um, and then I would do yoga, I'd meditate, I'd dance, I'd scream, I'd pound on the floor, I'd paint, I'd, you know, sing, I'd do whatever I needed to do to express, to like process whatever emotions were coming up. So it's kind of like my own spiritual practice, which was really private to me. And like, it's the first time that I've really talked about it more openly, because I feel like, for me, this healing journey, and this thing called healing that we're all like kind of into these days, and mental health, is so private and personal, that it's like, doesn't really matter if I share it with you, because who the fuck cares? It works for me. I don't care what you think about my process. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. Like at the same time, if it works for you, awesome. Let's all celebrate. But if it doesn't like go out and find your own version, like just because it worked for me doesn't mean that this exact protocol is going to work for you. It's just what came to me when I was doing the medicines. So after like the experimenting with the MDMA and the, um, the mushrooms, I also started to add in cannabis to that. Hmm. And so, and that was really cool to just sort of like see where my mind would go. And sometimes I would notice if I was in, I I could actually start to tell if I wasn't in a good place mentally. And I don't know if like you've ever struggled with this or with depression or anxiety. Oftentimes you don't even really know what you're feeling and you don't even know. Yeah. You don't even know that you're depressed until like, days go by and you're like, wait a minute, 
I've been in the cloud for quite some time now. Like what happened? What shifted? So part of my intention for when I was doing the MDMA and the mushrooms and the cannabis was please reveal the truth to me so I can, you know, work with these triggers. I don't want to be unconscious to this, like reveal it to me, reveal it to me, reveal it to me. Cause I wanted to know if I, I knew that if I became more conscious about my process, I could work with it a lot smoother and it wouldn't just take me and like, you know, take me for weeks at a time. And I'd be like, I'm drowning in the misery of my life. It's like, I wanted more of an interaction, more of a dialogue with my yeah. symptoms. So I, I worked with it like that. And then the ketamine helped me on a nervous system level. I didn't know how much flight, like fight or flight I was still in because I didn't know how to relax. And every time I would relax, I would have a panic attack. <laughs> so it was like a shitty loop. And when I did the ketamine um, in lozenge form and in IV form, I found that it started to go and work on my nervous system and in the places that are really difficult for us to see. Um, that we hold tension in our bodies and in our, in our psyche. So it was, it's been a cool process. Yeah. The level of actual like physical relaxation that ketamine can induce is really kind of crazy and hard to describe if you haven't done it. Um, so I know what you mean there. At any point, did you ever work with like a guide or psychedelic therapist or did you pretty much do the whole Mm -hmm. thing kind of self-guided? And what, what, how would you sort of compare and contrast that sort of like guided experience versus the self-guided stuff? That's a really good question. Um, it wasn't until recently that I started to work with a doctor who prescribes uh, microdosing protocols. And I was like, I want to try what it's like to work with someone who like has a program and, you know, does yeah. either like the Paul Stamets protocol or... Um, like there's different things like stacking and whatnot. And I told her I've been experimenting. I just go with what I feel called to. I'm a little embarrassed to say that to you because you're a doctor. And she's like, don't be, don't be, you have nothing to be you know, embarrassed about. And um, why don't you try this protocol? And then we'll check in weekly. And I really liked it. And it, but it took me that long to build enough trust with myself, with the medicine and with someone outside of myself to let someone in. So like, I might be a unique case, but I think there's a lot of people out there with trust issues. So if you're one of them, raise your hands, because I think like, you don't push yourself farther than you need to just trust that you know what you need for your own healing. And if that's just to focus on you having an inner dialogue that's private with you that you don't share with anyone. Cool. Start with that. Then you can take it to the next level. Yeah. And it's funny. And this is one thing that I really don't like about this narrative that it all has to be done with a facilitator or a coach or a therapist or whatever, is that a lot of people do have trust issues, especially people that are depressed. And like, no one wants to go and do, especially if it's like your first time doing psychedelics, like there's just the thought or concept of going to do this mysterious drug with this like mysterious guide that like, maybe you had one meeting with prior is like, kind of terrifying yeah um, I, I, when, I know when my they don't mom, talk about it a lot <laughs> no they don't like even when, when my mom told me she wanted to do psychedelics I was kind of like okay well I could probably find someone you know that you could do them with or whatever and she's like I don't want to do them with some random person like I want to do them with you <laughs> you know someone Aww. that you trust yeah. and I think that that is like 
Yeah, it's something that's not really talked about. It's just this, I think this idea that you have to do it with these like trained professionals. I mean, in certain circumstances, it's probably the right advice, but in general, it's probably better to just be around people that you trust or just by yourself, assuming that you're in a safe environment. Yeah, um, I think yeah, you got to know, real. you got to just have some, just have like a real chat with yourself and be like, okay. <laughs> Where are we right now? Like, are we really ready for this? Are you truly ready to confront whatever comes up, the good, the bad, and the ugly? Because like the potential is there, as we know. And and if you're not, take more time to process, journal, like, you know, punch your pillow a million times before you go into a <laughs> You know what I mean? There's a lot of things that you can do preemptively um, to train for psychedelics. Like, I feel like in a lot of ways, I trained to be prepared to go deeper. And I actually ended up finding a wonderful therapist that I work with now um, who has nothing to do with psychedelics, but she is trauma-informed. And I told her that I was going to be doing psychedelics and that I would like to talk to her about my processing. And she and I was like, are you okay with that? And she said, yes. So like, if you... That's amazing. Yeah, and if you have... Um, yeah, I think that but the ideal situation would be doing it with someone that you trust. Totally. So we talked about how psychedelics helped you sort of reconnect with your sort of sensuality side um, with your husband and obviously helped with all sorts of things. Um, one question, maybe a bit intense, is, you know, me personally, when I've done psychedelics, I've had some experiences where I started seeing people that had been very, very bad and hurtful to me. I started seeing them rather as like an aggressor, as more like a victim, if that makes sense. And I started gaining like empathy for these people that had been horrible to me, like in my past. Did you ever have something similar where you maybe started thinking of like Keith Raniere in a different light or as a victim himself, maybe? Definitely. And I, I mean, talk about MDMA. I mean, I think for me, that has some of the processes that I've done with that drug specifically cracked my heart open in a way that I didn't expect. And I was able to see myself in a way that I had never been able to see because I was so hard on me for being foolish, being susceptible to being abused, being dumb and naive. And I had so much judgment towards me and my process that once I turned the mirror onto myself and I was able to have compassion for me, the compassion that I had for other people started to grow because I could just see how we were all connected. And that like, I remember at one point, it's not only the compassion pieces that you get out, which are like golden nuggets that truly set you free. It's also sometimes the humor that you really need to like blow up an old memory and show you that like the thing that you're so freaking hung up on is not to make light of people's trauma, but like laughable. And so I had an experience, I had an experience like that where I was, I saw Keith in my mind and I saw him, like on me. And it was kind of a recreation of an abusive situation where normally if I had had that memory, I would have gone into a panic attack or like had nightmares at night. But because I was on the medicine, I was like able to see it in a different way. And I, I just started laughing, laughing in his face. And, and I was like, this is absurd. You're a monster. 
Like I literally started laughing, like you're a monster. And I said, I can't believe I thought you were friends. <laughs> I can't believe I thought we were friends. <laughs> like, like it just was, that's how absurd the situation was to me that I had to kind of like make fun of myself in the situation a little bit, but also then have compassion for me to think like, no wonder I'm having such bad PTSD. Like you're a monster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but so it's and like is it that is something weird. that you had had a hard time maybe like admitting or thinking about prior because yeah. i remember when watching the documentary there was a point where i think you said something like it took you a long time to even admit to yourself that you had been brainwashed and i imagine that it probably also took a long time to admit that keith was a monster as you put it abusive and like that's that's the like the beauty of these kind of revelations that you can have because they're not linear. You can go back in time and have some awesome clarity about something that happened years ago that you saw only from one viewpoint. And then you can see it from like eight. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, that experience no longer has this hold on me. So I can now freely say to you, yes, I was brainwashed. It was horrible. I know what it's like to be possessed, to not have your own free will. And I'm here now with my life as I want it. And it's an amazing thing, but like without being able to go back and see things for what they were and like the extent of what they were, you can't even experience the present moment. Yeah, definitely. And I love what you said about just being able to laugh at some of this stuff. I think like when you can laugh about it, that's really when it kind of is, at least in the past, maybe, maybe not in the past, but it's, that can be a big turning point for a lot of people. I know it has been for me. Definitely. Like, me too. Yeah. And also to be able to like person like personify things is really helpful too. And the and the mushrooms are really good at that because I love wordplay. I'm a writer and I like to write poetry and whatnot. So like oftentimes when I'm on a journey or I'm microdosing, I'll write. Um not on the journey, but when I microdose, I'll write. But on the journey, like words will come to you and they're playful and silly. And so like you get to poke fun at the depression or at the anxiety. And they're like, oh, there's the cloud again. Like <laughs> here it comes yeah. and mm -hmm. there it goes. And you're like, wow, yeah, there it goes. But like you, you get that kind of perspective and then you don't lose it. You get, just get to bring it to life, but you have to practice. Like you can't just rely on psychedelics. Otherwise, that's pretty lazy. Like you got to also do the work so that when you're on the court, like you have the skills, not just when you're off the court. Right, 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 right. Have you had any bad or difficult trips during this psychedelic journey? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think, I'm trying to think about one Yeah. And, and actually the, I haven't had a lot of bad trips because I, I do try to be as intentional as possible. And I really take a lot of time to like prepare myself mentally. And, and like, I do my little prayers over my microdose or over the mushrooms. And I really like do my thing to set up the space. So I don't really have a lot of bad trips, but I have had, and I don't know if you've talked to people about this, but post ketamine, Apparently you can have really intense nightmares and I didn't know about no, this. Okay. So I read about this and I, I didn't know about it, but I had done ketamine like I think twice in one week. Um, 
because I wanted to see what it would be like to do them close together. Uh, and I had, I had asked, I actually asked a doctor about that because I wasn't going to just like be haphazardly dosing myself with that. And I was like, can I do this with the lozenge? And they were like, yes, especially if you're experiencing a lot of depression. Um, so I cleared it with them and I did it. And then I felt wonderful for during the day. But then when I went to sleep, my subconscious started to like overflow with all of these nightmares and they're really vivid and really aggressive and I asked the doctor I was like is this normal that people will have nightmares after ketamine because I feel like I'm like tripping in my sleep but it's not good and um and they said yeah it can happen so like I I believe that the subconscious is really really powerful and I think that probably at night it's trying to resolve things for us that we can't really deal with during the day but it was trying to give me a nice way out (laughs) but it wasn't that nice (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and were these sort of nightmares, uh, like flashbacks to Nexium events? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Generally wow. when I have, generally when I have, um, PTSD, it's related to something that happened in Nexium or my childhood. But a lot of the stuff that I've had to deal with is night terrors and panic attacks, um, that happen in the daytime, but they're all like triggered by either, a memory or a sensation or um, something that kind of reminds you. It, it doesn't even have to be anything that direct. Like for a while, when I first get out, got out, if I saw anyone with the same hairstyle as Allison, I would feel like instantly, <laughs> wow. like even just even just a hairstyle that looks similar. Yeah. So like it. So if you're like me and you're a sensitive person and you're walking around in your day. Um, expect to be triggered. Just like figure out ways to help yourself with that. <laughs> like, right, right. like I have a whole bunch of tools in my cell phone just for like what to do when you're triggered. And like, are you in, you know what I mean? Just, Is I try just to a, be helpful. Just a note that you put together, like an app? I or? have a, no, I have a whole notes in here that is, I call it my toolbox. And it's, um, it's things that, it's go-to things that I know can help myself. Like if I notice that I'm depressed or if I notice that I'm anxious, like now I don't even need the list. Like I've, I've really gotten good at like listening better. And then also just rolling with it. Like if you, sometimes you are just sad and it is what it is and you don't need to push yourself out of it. You don't need to change it. You don't need to jump up and down a million times or get over it. Just let yourself be sad for a little while and then go on with it. You know, like nobody teaches us that either. <laughs> that is true. Although I do think I could probably benefit from putting together a list like that. I think that might help me. So maybe that was some good I, inspiration for me I to can, do something like that. I can share your mind with you, but it will, you'll be like, hmm, okay, that's weird. But <laughs> I don't <laughs> well, know if you're I, much I, of a I, painter. Certainly c- yeah. I do like to paint a little. Yeah, for sure. Oh, good. Yeah, painting is definitely therapeutic. Anything, I mean, anything that really forces you to just not look at your screen is... Uh, is super therapeutic. I wanted to kind of bounce back to just when you were talking about doing the trip while you were still in Nexium. I mean, oh, did yeah. you have any, like, what was that trip like? I had two. I mean, you're in the middle, right, too, but I mean, you were like in the middle of this insane situation and then you take a high dose of psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Like, what was I the didn't trip? Even know was it a bad trip? I- was it weird? Do you even remember? I do. But I didn't even remember the significance of the two trips until way later. Like, 
And when I was like, wow, I can't believe my mom did that. But then at the same time, I was like, also amazing that she had the balls. But like uh, the first trip, I remember it being, I was nervous because I was with the stranger that I didn't know back to that. Um, But I trusted my mom. So I was like, okay, if my mom says that this is safe, then maybe this is safe. And so I took the dose with him and I just remember having a really really amazing time I lied on the couch and I went into inside and I was like riding through what felt like just tunnel after tunnel and of colored tunnels kind of felt like you went you know like a never-ending story when he's riding on the back (laughs) of a I was like yeah this is amazing just kind of like gliding through things and it was beautiful and vivid and very much like being inside of a kaleidoscope Um, and I then remember at one point like a couple hours in I was inside my my with myself for hours I didn't even really remember that the guy was out there and I opened my eyes and I was turning on the side of the couch and I kept opening them looking around the room and being like I've been here before like I've been in this room before but I wasn't I was still inside looking at the house that I grew up in when I was two. So I was like, I was opening my eyes and closing my eyes, but I was seeing my, my childhood home when I would close my eyes. And, but like in kind of like a weird, like not here, but here kind of way. I've had that sort (laughs) of like, it's almost like time and place travel where you're tripping and you're like, wait, am I in my house or am I at the house? Like what, where am I? Yeah. I've definitely, I'm not the only one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I remember it was like, it was really significant for me to remember that because I felt like myself. And that was the, that was the key takeaway that I didn't really think was that significant at the time because I was still under the influence of the cult. But it was like the mushrooms took me to a place that I hadn't felt since I was two years old, which is safe in my own home. Mm. And, and like loving my own home. And I had been kind of like, gypsy-ish for many years like you know bouncing from apartment to apartment or like you know I had now was living on Allison's couch and like I would didn't have a home base I didn't have anywhere that I felt like was mine so I think that was kind of the significant takeaway for me then the second time I went back with um this shaman the trip was horrible and it was right after someone super high up in Nexium had died and so we had just like there was a lot of focus on her. Her name was Pam. It was uh, Heath's girlfriend and she had died of cancer. And in the journey, I could hear her talking to me. And I was, I had gone up, like I was very uncomfortable in this journey. Like I was moving, I was doing shit, like shit that you shouldn't be doing. And I remember walking up the stairs, bad idea, uh, walking up to the stairs in the bathroom, staring at myself in the mirror going, I don't know who you are. Like, I don't know who you are. And then I sat on the toilet and just started crying. And I turned, I curled up into a ball. Like, I don't know how I got out of the bathroom on my knees, was hiding in a bookshelf going like, literally, I kept saying, I'm an acorn. I'm an acorn. (laughs) (laughs) Like I was inside of a shell. Like I was like, you know what I mean? Like, fucked up like inside of a shell screaming at these books I'm an acorn I'm an acorn and I open my eyes and I look at this purple book that says wise woman and I was just like okay 
And then I went back down and I went into hell again. Like it was just like, re- it kept reoccurring. And I didn't like, you know, you're crying so hard. You don't know if you're boogers or tears or if you're <laughs> like, you know, it's just one of those messy trips that I think now looking back, that was more the mindset that I was in was like pretty much total chaos, emotional overload, uh, fear, like isolated, trapped, all of the, like, I mean, all of these things I was expressing, even the fact that I went in and I couldn't recognize my own face. Like, I know that that's, that sometimes happens to people when they take a lot of drugs and they're like, I don't like, that doesn't look like me. Yeah, but what I was if, saying, if you haven't done it, I definitely recommend yeah. doing uh, five grams of mushrooms and looking at yourself in the bathroom mirror. <laughs> it'll do. Yeah. I'm not sure what it'll do, but it'll do something. But um, it did. It, 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 it kind of like pointed something out to me that I must have known on a certain level that I was not like I was no longer myself. Like the that when you look in your own eye, you're like, mm, I don't see you in there. And so you said earlier that your mom said that like for an hour after the trip was done, she felt like you were back. And yeah. then as soon as you kind of got back on your phone and started communicating with the folks back in Albany, um, you kind of just went right back to where you had started. Were there yeah, any totally. like reverberations of that trip in the following weeks or was was there so much else just going on in your life that you kind of just, it was just one other thing in like a chain of crazy things that had been happening and you were just too had too much going on in the present moment to think about it sadly the latter i wish i wish at that time that it would have um but it's really kind of an interesting thought because like there's a lot of people out there there's a, there's a whole demographic of people who probably have suffered from a lot of psychological trauma that like given the opportunity to say psychedelics they may be able to get back to a part of themselves that they thought was, you know, irretrievable, like whether it comes from PTSD, from being a combat veteran. I mean, I know that a lot of science is studying these things, but like not a lot of people are saying, oh, I wonder what this would do for someone that's brainwashed, or I wonder what this would do for someone who is in a cult or a high control group. Hmm. Interesting, because oftentimes you write those people off as not I can't fix that shit that's too fucked up I don't (laughs) like I do not believe I do not believe in that anymore like from what I've experienced in myself and the way that I was a couple years ago from how I experience my life now I think anyone can get through anything um yeah if if they try so I mean speaking of you know using psychedelics to deprogram from cults and high control groups have other members or former members I guess of Nexium like reached out to you to for guidance on like using these tools to help deprogram or some of them is that happening to your knowledge some of them have I heard from one person that they were also experimenting with ketamine for PTSD so I was like oh cool me too and like that was kind of like the extent of it Um, but a lot of people ask me what I'm doing for my healing. And so I am, I've started to be more open about the fact that I use psychedelics. Um, but I also, I just want to do it. it, I just want to do it carefully, you know, and sure. Of course. course. And and put myself out there with the right type of the right types of people and programs. And so that I feel safe with the things that I, that I put um, my name by, and also yeah, just knowing you have a position of influence. So you got to be careful yeah, how to use it. I right? got to, 
really careful. I mean, I can't be haphazard or as casual as I would be for myself and my own experimenting because there's people out there like, even though um, they don't know me, they trust me. So I feel like I feel responsible for that. So I'm trying to just like f- connect with the right people, work with the right doctors, work with, I mean, like I get to meet people like you um, in this space who really care about the integrity of like the products and the companies that are coming out because there's, it's, there's a lot of opportunity for money grabs and, you know, people to exploit very vulnerable population of people who want to heal. And I've already been there, done that. So like, yeah, <laughs> not going to happen again. <laughs> that's actually a perfect segue into a question that I definitely wanted to ask you is um, obviously psychedelics have been instrumental in your healing and deprogramming from a cult, but there are also like psychedelic cults out there too. Um, and people yes. do use psychedelics as tools to brainwash people. So that it's like, they are there. They can be used for both good true. and evil. Have you seen or come across whether it's specific groups or even just like attitudes and behaviors that you see on some of these like psychedelic Instagrams that really scream kind of like cult vibes to you that you kind of want to throw up some warning flags about? Yes. Uh, the answer is yes. And I have seen a lot (laughs) of things that I'm like, Ooh, that looks funky. But like at the same time, even though I have, um, like a keen eye for these types of red flags now, I don't like to pass judgment prematurely. Like I like to go into something with an open mind and then let the information teach me. So like a lot of these groups and people out there are doing good work. um, But they're also like, there's varying degrees of red flags in my opinion. So like there's some people out there who are using plant medicine and these things are not legalized at the moment. And so they're doing it, they have like an underground operation and they kind of, you know, have a pedestal because people come to them and they're in a position of power. So they have the potential to charge whatever they want to charge um, without, you know, people really questioning them. That's kind of a red flag. So like anytime you go into the healing space, like you want to look for professionalism. Like you want to look for some thing that has a little bit more of a streamlined process. Like you don't want to be on the receiving end of somebody saying, Hmm, that looks like a rich guy. Let me charge him double. Like that shit, that, <laughs> right, that right. shit happens. Like, yes, ha- have you ever does. been to a foreign country? Have you ever walked through a market? <laughs> like they see, they see, you know, yeah, they, you they or me and the white talks. guys. Yeah. Right. So like, so like that's also out there. So like, think about that when you, if you're going out into the world and you're like, you know, I'm going to try psychedelics this month and I'm going to look around, shop around for shamans or whatever. Like there's things to look for. There's people to ask. There's like, are they accredited with any other, you know, pre-existing groups? Like that would probably be one filter to look through. Like maps is generally a credible organization that associates itself with certain things, but there are certain things that slip through the cracks. And sometimes people decide to give themselves, you know, self-proclaimed, like self-proclaimed titles that they didn't earn. So also red flag. Like if you see somebody who's saying like, I'm a goddess or I'm a warlock or I'm a, uh, you know, I'm a this and you like, it's worth questioning. It's totally cool. If you believe it's totally cool. If you believe in that stuff, like I love magic. I believe in magic. You either believe in magic or you don't, but there's also risk mitigation. So like, you don't want to go to somebody who 
potentially feel like if you get a bad feeling from the person that you're going to go take medicine with, walk the fuck away. Like you trust your initial instincts. Don't let anything override that. Go with your gut. That would be one one filter. You mentioned uh, the, the goddesses and the warlocks. How do you feel about the word shaman? You know, I, my name is India, so, <laughs> so I, have, I have a lot of experience with these sorts of names and people and, um, and practices, and a lot of them I like myself. I think if you're going to call yourself that, um, you better have like a really good pedigree of sorts, like something that traces back far, you know, far beyond this country, because it's kind of a, like a serious title. Like you don't want to just throw that around. It's like being a healer or a medicine person or something like that, or a doctor in some, you know, some countries. So I think yeah. you want to look and for a, some legitimacy there. Thrown around, thrown around so much. One of my friends, I forget, on on another podcast said he was like, you know, you can't spell shaman without sham, which really kind of cracked me up. Yeah, but yeah. There, there's like, definitely. There, I, there's I would say that some of those like um, titles. Yeah, and and especially those titles when they're just given to yourself when you just decide to call yourself that that's definitely a red flag you know if other people have decided that you're a shaman that's one thing but if you just kind of exactly. go out there and you're like i'm a shaman right my uh, name's shaman Woo! <laughs> you know like, like i'm a shaman and i can do whatever i want like that's not cool that's not really what the healing space is about the healing space is about empowering some somebody else who's coming to you uh you know like as a teacher or a guide and saying like hey how can I help you feel stronger? Like, how can I help you feel more confident in the decision that you're, you are going to make? It has nothing to do with the freaking guide, except for the fact that they can take advantage of you if you're under the influence. So like, don't put, there's ways to not put yourself in those high risk situations, but also don't be ashamed if you have been victimized by a group or a person like this, you're not alone. I I know multiple people, I could count them on my hands right now who have come to me and said, you know, I was, I was doing this ceremony and this guy kissed me and it felt weird. And then he told me that it was fatherly, but I didn't feel that way at all. And then they kicked me out of the group and I'm like, red flag, like, Jesus. All of that isn't cool behavior. I think if people are, I don't know, I think it's kind of the Wild West right now and there's not a lot of regulation and there's not a lot of real people policing people, protecting people, which I think would be cool to implement as this this grows. Well, that's a big part of the problem, right? Is like the, this stuff is still illegal and so there really can't be any regulation. Like all these groups really, with the exception of some of the ketamine practitioners are operating underground, which means that they have like far less scrutiny than they should have. And we're just kind of reliant on these like whisper networks or like self-reporting kind of like things that just kind of happen. Um, it's really right. unfortunate. And, so and, hopefully, and like, sadly, not everyone gets the message because like no, there's still people being not. taken advantage of. I, I just think that they, there's a lot of room for people to um, take advantage, which kind of sucks because I feel like it's, but yeah, it is what happens in you, every industry. It, yeah, it, it happens in every industry, but I think especially in psychedelics, just because of how powerful these chemicals are, like they really can just, you know, they turn on all of your, um, hormonal systems and make you really, really attached. And you get into these peak states with other people. And, um, especially when you look at a lot of the, um, 
communities, that word seems to be thrown around a lot where people get into these like psychedelic communities where they like continuously do psychedelics over and over again Let's with the talk same about people red over flag. time. <laughs> that can often be like a really big red flag. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's love bombing is a thing. And us, mm, yeah. That's what is love that, bombing? You know, love bombing is a thing that happens in cults that um, really basically like when you isolate somebody and you shower them with love, it doesn't need to be in a cult. Actually, it could be in a cult of one where like you could be with a narcissistic personality and they'd be like, Oh my God, Brom, you're amazing. I love everything about you. Like I want to be with you 24 seven. Then five seconds later, you're a piece of shit. I like, you're the worst person in the world, but like, it's the kinds of like ups and downs of pumping you up. Then, you know, pulling apart your confidence and pumping you up. And that can happen in communities like this, especially when people are in, you know, fragile states, you're, you can have a psychotic break, you can have, like, tremendous damage. So to be doing these things, like, haphazardly, casually, kind of, like, really, what sociopaths do, which is experiment on other people for pleasure. It's like, it's wrong. And and I think, I feel very protective about it. Yeah. And that this is why in, in general, I don't do psychedelics with people that I don't know super well um, because of kind of my Smart. position in the world. Tons of people ask, they're like, I would love to trip with you, bro. And I'm like, eh, no. I'd love to <laughs> um, trip with me. Not the, not the kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to trip with me and like, you know, maybe one or two other close people. I but that's another thing that. too, is like the, we were talking about like bringing people up and then breaking them down. Um, when we talk about this process of like psychedelic integration, which gets thrown a lot around a lot, a lot of times that can look almost like an interrogation session. I forget what they called it at next game. Was it like the EM sessions or whatever? Oh yeah, where, EM. Oh goodness. Where you, where you kind of <sighs> yeah, have, where it's right. like at the, at the end of psychedelics, you have to like do this self auditing and talk about what the experience was like. And depending on how that's done, it can almost be like, it can take the emphasis off of the the drug or the medicine and put it onto the person that is like facilitating the journey. And it can make them sort of look like the person that's responsible for this transformation. And it's like, you have to right. please them. And in your next psychedelic session, you have to like go even deeper and pull out even more deep things that you've like hidden from yourself and show them to this facilitator so that you can prove that you're like making progress on your healing right. journey. And that's, mm -hmm. the, I've seen a lot of that stuff happen before with people that have gotten into these like, like people becoming dependent on the therapist yeah and it's like more it ends up being more about this shaman or, or even right. just therapist than about mm -hmm. the healing themselves and this is why i love what we talked about at the beginning which is this idea that you can kind of be your own healer or be your own shaman if you want to be you know and not yeah. have to rely on someone else i mean granted do do your research and and of course and of course. educate yourself like i'm sure you have done extensively but i i wholeheartedly believe in people like we're way more powerful than we think and and we really do know the answers to what we need like the the whole idea my cat's tail might come into the screen sorry kitty um the whole idea that you need somebody else to tell you the answers for your life is a really big uh mistake that i think i believed for a long time you know i love to collaborate and work with people and and you know, share ideas and whatnot. But to think that somebody else knows better than me for me uh, was a mistake. Yeah, totally. Well, and yeah, I want to be respectful of your time. We've been talking for a mm -hmm. while, but um, I have just a few more quick questions. I mean, what's sort of next for you? I mean, I this is kind of 
you're now starting to talk about psychedelics more openly. Yeah. I really appreciate you sharing it with me and my audience. Um, where do you go from here in terms of like sort of your, you know, public facing psychedelics work? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just new on the scene. So if anyone out there listening wants to chat, <laughs> okay. I'm open, but, but really I, I, I'm just, I'm looking for places to share my story, to share, um, a survivor's experience of the use of psychedelic assisted therapy. Um, and also just, I want to get into talking at universities and speaking to young people about the red flags when it comes to cults and abusive dynamics, what to look for, how to get out and also how to heal. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of playing around with the whole topic of, um, healing and growth and like post-traumatic growth and basically like life (laughs) life has a lot of hurdles that we can (laughs) learn from or get you know beaten up by so I think I've I've got a strong message that I want to share and and I really like to talk to people so I feel like if I could make this my full-time job that would be awesome um but right now I, I I work for stars as a producer so I'm looking for stories um like female focused narratives, uh, true crime stories, kind of similar to mine in Nexium, and giving people a platform to share and to feel empowered by sharing their story. Um, but I'm also working on my foundation with my mother and that's, you know, a slow process and really a labor of love. And we're starting with a website that's kind of like a psychedelic lifestyle website. And then we want to grow from there. So amazing. Kind of what I got on my plate. I love it. Well, was there anything else that you wanted to make sure to bring up that I failed to ask or anything you just kind of want to leave the listeners with? Um, yeah, I just think like it's kind of a, a takeaway of the documentary and I've been thinking about it a lot, but just wanted to leave with the thought of who and what we let ourselves be influenced by. Um, because I think right now we are in an age of a lot of influence, a lot of information coming at us all the time. And like the time that you take to just be with you and be silent, whether it's on psychedelics or not, is really valuable. So I I highly recommend taking that time. I agree. And just to add to that, not only is there so much information and influence coming at us, but I feel like people are even just looking for answers more than ever. And it's super easy to just grasp onto anything that seems promising. And you can easily find yourself manipulated, whether that's like in a literal cult or just like down some weird YouTube rabbit hole where you start like, you know, worshiping these weird like influencer people that have like, you know, weird messages with weird agendas behind them. Um, Totally. Like just look look behind the label. I mean, you know, you just want to know what you're eating. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. Know the source. So be um, conscious and intentional with the things that you consume and the messages that you allow to, um, you know, influence you, I guess, because there there is a war, there's an information war and an influence war that's happening nonstop. So maybe one lighthearted question before we end it, if you could do psychedelics with anyone dead or alive, who would it be? Oh goodness. Oh, we talked about this. I think mine was Jimi (laughs) Hendrix and I'm going to stick with that because Jimi Hendrix. I just, yeah, I just feel like 
it would be chill. It would be safe. I he might want to play his guitar, which I'd be totally okay with. Amazing. And <laughs> <laughs> so I think I would like that. Also, I just think that he is a genius. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Yeah, I that's you know definitely up there for me. So maybe you know and Snoop. Yep, and Snoop. Okay, Snoop and Jimmy. Okay, (laughs) dig it. That that would be epic. I'm really into music. I'm really into music. So like, I want to know that genius mind. (laughs) Amazing. Well, India, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story, and thank um, you. Looking forward to you know seeing what's to come. Bye. Bye.